Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Timothy 4. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That they would be able to share with their neighbors. Guys like Martin, that they would be able to, to study your word and that you might work in miraculous ways to give them introductions through, through dreams or crazy circumstances that you would call people to yourself through them. And Lord, I, I pray for the Bowmans uh, and, and for Megan this morning uh, as we pray that you might bring a, a baby safe and healthy to, to join us in our community of faith here. We thank you and we praise you in your holy name. Amen. Well, good morning. The kids at this time are dismissed for Children's Church. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We'll be working through verses 7 through 9 this morning. Titus chapter 1, verses 7 through 9 today. Well, as we turn there, we continue on. This is the, the last, uh, well, maybe not the last time I have to preach about something that's awkward, but at least I don't have to preach about myself so specifically uh, every week after this. Um, that's really not true. Every week that we come and open the scriptures, it speaks to all of us, and that includes myself. So if I ever step on your toes during a sermon, know that my feet are bloody long before I make it to the pulpit, because the word of God steps on my toes all week long as I work through these these verses. And so as we as we do this, I think uh, we were reading in our scripture reading this morning, I, I really hope even in that scripture reading, that's why we do a public reading of scripture every week. If you noticed in that passage, it says, give attention to the public reading of scripture, that that's a normal thing that Christians have been doing since the first century, reading the word of God together out loud on a regular basis. And so that's why we have a scripture reading every week. We want to obey that passage. And in that passage, Paul is giving Timothy just 
good fatherly advice of what it looks like to care for and pastor this church in Ephesus. And at the very end of that passage, he says, keep watch over your life. In our translation this morning said, in your teaching. A lot of translations will say your life and your doctrine. The way that you live and the things that you believe, because by it you will save yourself and your hearers. I think that's a huge thing to say. What he's saying is the work of public ministry, the work of doing these things, that if we live the way that God would have us live and we teach the word of God the way that it ought to be taught, we will see people come to know Jesus and they will be saved from their sins. And in that, we save ourselves by believing that same message, seeing it applied to our own life and being changed by it. That's what salvation happens because our entrance as Christians into the kingdom of heaven is the same of anyone else. It's by grace and grace alone through the message of the gospel. And so as we talk about that, I want to just stress the importance again as we walk through. Why do we walk through verses of the Bible? Why do we preach passages that are for pastors when there's really only like one pastor here because all of scripture speaks to us and because what Paul teaches about public ministry in 1 Timothy 4 shows us that when we do this right, when we get this part right, it will be the salvation of others and ourselves. So this should be really important to you as a Christian that we get it right when we appoint or ordain, or whatever your denominational background calls it, when you call somebody a pastor, when you call a man to be a pastor, it's really, really important. Because when we get that one right, God will use that ministry and the ministry of the church and the leadership of the church to see many people come to know Jesus. And so there's a lot at stake. And so that's what I want us to remember as we jump in to verses uh, from Titus chapter one. I wanna read the whole paragraph for us. So I'm gonna start in verse five, just so we can remember where we're at uh, contextually. And we'll read the public reading of scripture again. But this time, Titus, <laughs> verse five, uh, all the way to verse nine. It says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This is our passage for this morning as we work for the verses 7 to 9. We're going to take this one verse as a time. And the first, what we want to see from this passage is it tells us, tells us what a pastor must not be. That he must be blameless or above reproach. And that what it means to be blameless and above reproach is that he is not certain things, but he is other things. And we so see in verses 7 and 8 that there is these two lists. One is a negative list, things that the pastor must not be. And the next is a positive list, the things that the pastor must be. And so we'll look at the negative one first, the positive one second, and then wrap it up as we look at what it means for a pastor to hold firm to the word. And so what we see here first is that negative list, that in order to be a good steward of God's family, in order to be above reproach, at the beginning of part of verse 7, 
The pastor must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. He cannot hold those qualities. And so what I want to do is we're going to walk through those qualities, and I'm going to use the book of Proverbs to help us do that. So I want to look at that quality, and we're just going to look at a couple of Proverbs. This allows us to do a couple things. One, it allows us to teach through Proverbs. That's a hard book to teach through anyway, so we get to take a couple of them this morning really quickly. And two, it, it helps us see that the book of Proverbs was written to princes. It was written to Solomon's sons. That's what it seems to be saying at the very beginning of that book. And it's this book of wisdom. And he's saying, these are my wise sayings for you. And then there's kind of this collection of Proverbs. That doesn't mean that Solomon necessarily wrote all of them. But rather, it seems that he collected them. And, and he brought them and he wanted to give them to his sons to say, this is how you live a wise life. And this is what it looks like to have wisdom. But what's really interesting about biblical wisdom is it doesn't just mean intellect. It doesn't just mean that you're smart. But to be wise biblically means that you live rightly. That your intelligence, your understanding of the world and your place in it, then manifests itself in right and godly living. You do what's right when you are wise. And so as we look at the things that we must not do and the things that we must do, I think the book of Proverbs is really, really helpful to us because it helps us see what wise living really is, what rightful living really is. And so that's what we're going to do. They're going to be on the screen. It'll probably be hard to keep up with me because I'm going to have to move a little quick so that we can pack all this in so you can look at those Proverbs on the screen as we look at those one at a time. So first, it tells us, I'm going to move back because every time I take a step forward, I hear just a little bit of feedback and that's distracting me. So I'm going to move some stuff. Sorry. Before we get too far. All right. So first, the pastor must not be arrogant. Proverbs 3 verses 5 through 8 tells us this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. That should sound familiar. We just did Romans 12, where he quotes that passage. Paul quotes Proverbs here in Romans 12. It tells us, never be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Pastors can't be arrogant because they can't step into something sacred like a pulpit. And it's sacred because we know that's where the word of God is preached to us if they're leaning on their own understanding. Now, this is easy for me because I know I don't have much to offer you either anyway. Like if I was just leaning on my own understanding, uh, these would be really, really bad sermons because I just don't have a lot of understanding to begin with. I don't know what people do who aren't really faithful to the word of God. I'm not sure how they even come up with things to say. But that's what we want to do, and not just in the pulpit, but, but and when we counsel one another, when we care for one another, when we talk to each other, are we leaning on our own understanding, which is really, really arrogant and prideful, or do we lean on God's understanding? Because that's what brings healing and refreshment to the bones of people. What brings healing, what brings truth, what brings these things is not to lean on our own understanding, not to be wise in our own estimation, but to lean on the Lord. So it's very easy, I think, for sometimes leaders, because they get appointed as leaders, to think that there's something special about them, to think, I've got this. I'm the wise one. I know what to do. I know the right decision to make. But we want to see that the Bible calls us not to arrogance and not to pride, but to humility, because that's what Jesus does. When Jesus comes, he's described as being gentle and lowly. He's humble and meek, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He doesn't come across as arrogant. He's not a bully in the way that he leads. He leads gently and kindly, 
and he leans on the Father. If Jesus is going to do that, we ought to as well. And the other proverb that I want to bring to this is Proverbs 16, 18. And it's a warning. It tells us, pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit before a fall. One of the tricky things about pride and arrogance, particularly in Western culture, is it can get you just far enough. The really scary thing about arrogance and pride and that way, that authoritarian style of leadership in our culture, is sometimes it does get you just far enough. It moves you up the ladder just to the point right where the enemy's ready. And then pride and destruction come. That pride leads to your fall and to your demise. It becomes the worst thing that could ever happen to you. The worst thing that could ever happen to a prideful person is they could actually gain authority. They could actually gain control. If anybody has had a bad boss, you know what I'm talking about. Right? If you've ever had somebody who gets elevated to a place where they really, their character is just not ready for it. Pride comes before destruction. Because in our culture, that sense of pride, the sense of confidence, almost sometimes leads to this false sense of, well, I guess they seem they know what they're doing, so we'll just follow him. Or we'll just follow her. But that pride, that arrogance, it'll lead us to destruction. That's, that's a serious problem that we have to look past. The next thing that it tells us that a pastor cannot be is he must not be quick-tempered. Proverbs 14, 17 tells us, a man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. The reality is, is people who are quick-tempered, rarely is that their only problem. Having a quick temper is usually a sign that you don't have self-control. And when you don't have self-control, you typically don't have self-control in other areas of your life as well. So a man of evil devices is what the back half of that proverb is, is telling us. He's hated. He becomes despised by the people that he leads because he has these other vices that are constantly leading him not to do what's right for the people that he leads, but rather to do what's right for himself. Because it also tells us that, that a man of quick temper acts foolishly. How many times, maybe in an argument with a coworker or your spouse or your kids, have you gotten really mad and the next thing you know, you just wish you could grab words back? Because they just come pouring out. Boom, 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 boom. We've all experienced that. A pastor can't be quick-tempered because the reality is, is once words go out, you can't just grab them back. When we're quick to get angry, when we're quick to get mad, we act foolishly. We do foolish and unwise things, and real damage can be done. And we can really hurt the people that we lead. Because what we also see about anger from Proverbs, in Proverbs 22, 24 through 25, it says, Make no friendship with a man who's given to anger nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Anger, like many things, it's contagious. Leaders can't lead through anger and bullying and, 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 and running a hot temperature, being a hothead, because that will spread throughout the culture of the church and the environment that they do. It will become a snare to other people as well. I once used to work in a really toxic culture for a company here in Columbus. And one of my early jobs when I first lived here, and let me tell you, anger was a normal way to do business. It was a normal way of business. And there was screaming and yelling and fighting and back offices and out on the warehouse floor. It was contagious. This guy would just get hammered on by his boss, and then he would come around the corner and hammer the next employee that was under him. 
And we would watch that cycle happen all the time because that's how anger works. It, it infuses itself in a culture and then spreads like a cancer. Don't make friendship with an angry man that'll fill out the culture. Pastors can't be angry people prone to that because they will spread that in their church culture. It'll become a place that's toxic. People are angry, quick to anger, quick to be judgmental. We have to be men of self-control. And as a man of self-control, the pastor also cannot be a drunkard. Proverbs 31, 4 through 9 says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. This is another, uh, this is actually from, uh, uh, I believe it, uh, sorry, Proverbs 31 is, is written as a, a mother to her son, and then he tells her later about, or she tells him later what a, what a good wife looks like, if you're really familiar with that. But it actually opens up with other Proverbs as well in Proverbs 31. And so it's written to this king, It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Listen why lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. When leaders are given over to drunkenness, It's another sign that they don't have self-control. They live for themselves. People who get drunk are living for themselves. The reason why the Bible is saying a pastor cannot be a drunkard is is saying because he will not live for others. And in particular, what Proverbs 31 shows us is we will neglect the needs of those who need us most. The poor and the afflicted and the needy will be the ones who are outcast first when we're given over to our own desire drunkenness fuels our own desire guys can you turn the gain down just a smidge on my microphone i'm getting a little bit of thanks sorry yeah there we go and i can talk loud all right so here we go so drunkenness it it, it points to that but rather that this king he he's he's told open your mouth Judge rightly. Do what's right. You'll forget the needs of the poor and needy when you're giving to yourself. In the New Testament, when Paul tells, uh, when Paul writes to the Ephesians and tells them not to get drunk on wine, he tells them, he uses a word, he tells, it's a waste of your time. In the verse before that, he tells them to make the most of all your time because the days are evil. We must redeem our time. What happens when we're living for ourselves giving over to, to, to partying and drinking. It's all about us, and you've just been called to more. You can read Proverbs 31 and think, oh, that's just for kings. I'm not a king. Yes, you are. When you're bought by Jesus, you're a royal priesthood. You've become royalty. You've become a son and an heir to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is for you. You don't have your time to waste around going out and getting drunk. There's just way more important things to be doing. That's what the Bible is saying. It's saying don't act foolishly. When you get drunk, you forget the law. You forget God's commands and you do what you want to do. So pastors can't be people who are out going out and getting drunk. They also can't be people, and, and his words and, and Titus seem to be really c- closely knit together. They can't be violent. Uh, in, in some of the worst cases of drunkenness, we know that it leads to violence. And it seems like that's getting connected in Titus. 
They can't be a drunkard, and he can't be someone who's violent. He can't be a bully. That doesn't just mean physical violence, but he can't be a violent person. When the pastor doesn't get his way, he can't be somebody who starts screaming and yelling. He can't be somebody who starts manipulating and turning. He can't be somebody who starts putting down the weight and putting down the pressure so that he can get his way, and the church does what he wants them to do. This isn't the way godly leaders are called to lead. Proverbs 16, 29 says, A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads them in a way that is not good. Again, what happens when we're prone to these things? We start drawing other people into it as well. That's why it's so important that our leaders can't have these qualities because they'll draw other people into these qualities with them. Finally, the pastor cannot be greedy for gain. There's a list of Proverbs this time, and I'll read through them in succession because I want you to kind of see. I, I ordered them this way on purpose. People who are greedy for gain. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. When you want things your own way, when you're trying to manipulate the organization so that you can come out on top, you will cause strife in arguments so that you can get your way. You won't submit to other people. You won't be able to function in a plurality of elders because they're going to get in your way. Guys who are like this hate plurality. Guys who are like this despise serving with other men who can hold them accountable. So they will purposely set up their church government in such a way that they're on top and nobody else has a say. And you need to run away from that kind of leadership and that kind of structure because that structure, it's left unchecked. Like I said last week, even lead pastors have to lose sometimes. That's how you know you're getting the best for your people. When you're greedy for your own way, greedy for your own gain, wanting to to be a peddler of of God's word like Paul accuses people of doing uh, in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians, 2.17, 217, he, he, he calls these people peddlers of the gospel, saying that he is not one of those. They actually can use the Bible, use the God's word for their own greedy gain. And the Bible is saying that cannot be a pastor. They can't be people seeking after money. They have to be seeking after the Lord. They can't have a love for money. They have to have a love for Jesus. Because Proverbs 15, 27 says, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. And he who hates a bribe will live. People who pander to the more wealthy people in their congregation will bring problems into the congregation. James 2 tells us we cannot show partiality, that everyone is to be treated fairly. Finally, Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. It is dangerous for pastors to oppress the poor. They are calling upon the judgment of God upon themselves. I have seen pastors in the last year, and I should use that term really lightly as pastor, use coronavirus as a reason to tell people something like, if you sow a seed of X amount of dollars and send money to me, then you won't get sick. I'll pray this special prayer of you and you won't get sick. We may not see that get lived out here in this life, but the Bible tells us that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Proverbs 14.31 is a stern warning. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. 
do not insult the holy and living God and use a circumstance like a pandemic to encourage people to give you money so that you might give them a promise that God has not given. This is dangerous. But I want to see the other side of what Proverbs is telling us as well. He who is generous to the needy honors God. It doesn't say that he's generous to the needy, will get lavished in material gifts, or this life will get really easy for you. It says if you're generous to the needy, you will honor God. The Bible tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. That offering that's getting taken up is for Jews in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are starving because of a famine. And people in Macedonia who were poor were joyfully giving out of their poverty for the sake of these other Christians who are starving. And that's the context of the God loving a cheerful giver. We love cheerful givers. We started a donation box in the back because people kept handing me money. And while that's really nice and we love that you guys give and we don't want you to stop giving because we want to celebrate people giving to God's work because it, we do use it for those things, it's not a great system to hand me money. That's not a good accountability system. So there's now a box in the back. You can put your money there. And we, we don't want to stop people from doing that. But listen, we're not greedy for gain. That's why we do stuff like that. That's why we put in accountability measures and we welcome them. Because we don't want to insult God by taking advantage of the needy. We want to glorify God and honor him by being generous to the poor. That's who the pastor has to be. Because in this list and in all of these things, whether it is being arrogant, being quick-tempered, being a drunkard, being violent, or being greedy, the fact is this, sin does not exist in a vacuum. What I've tried to bring out in all of these proverbs and tell you is this, is as the pastor goes, so the church goes. Pastors who struggle with these things, their churches will struggle with these things. It, it, It doesn't just... I wish our sin could only affect us, but it doesn't. Your sin and my sin affects everyone, especially those that we lead. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6, 40. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. That should be a terrifying reality for all of us who lead. The people you lead, they will be like you. Now, ultimately, we want to see that verse and we want to see what's true. And what we said last week and we'll always say is, in the end, you're not a disciple just of Josh. You're a disciple of Jesus. In the end, he's an under-shepherd pointing you to the chief shepherd. That's who we want to be like. The goal isn't to be like me. That's a really low goal. The goal is to be like Jesus. And that's what we want to see. And we want to see that we, when we're fully trained over the process of our lifetime, we become more and more and more like Jesus. And when we either die or Jesus comes back, he says he will bring us to himself and we will be made like him. He will glorify us because we'll be fully clothed in his righteousness rather than our own. And that's what that passage is ultimately pointing to. That's what Jesus is ultimately pointing to in Luke chapter 6. But we want to see here is right now there's life to be lived. And your failings and your struggles and my failings and my struggles will always have a deep impact on the people that we lead. Your failure, your sin will impact your students, your employees, your spouse, your kids, your younger siblings. 
That's just the way God has made this world. So the last, the application point that I want you to see here is a bit of a warning. Remember, my failings affect others, and especially those that I lead. And when I say mine, I don't just mean me. Put yourself in there. My failings will affect other people, especially those that I lead. That's a stern warning from the Bible. It's a reality. Now, like Kendall said, we get to rest in grace upon grace. That God will cr- cover a multitude of sins and his love and his grace. And when I fail as a pastor, I get to cast myself before Jesus and ask him, don't hurt your church because of my failings. And he is good and gracious and kind. And when we fail as parents, we get to cast ourselves before Jesus and say, I messed it up. Help my kid come to know you and love you anyway. But we have to know those, those things will have an impact. They will matter. That's why we take this so seriously of who should be called and appointed and ordained as a pastor in a church because their failings will inevitably affect the, the people that they lead. As we look to what a pastor must not be, we also have to remember that the opposite is true, that we will become like our teacher. And so as we look what a pastor must not be, we must look at what the pastor must be. In verse 8, we are told that a pastor must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. I'll move through these a little bit quicker. First, we want to see that a pastor must be hospitable. They have to have open hands with the things that they've been given. They know that he who was rich became poor for our sakes. Talking about Jesus, we as pastors get that same joy Anything that God blesses us with, we can have open hands with. Romans 12, that we studied a couple weeks ago, tells us to seek hospitality. Hospitality can't be something that we're just kind of waiting to be hospitable for. We have to go looking for it. How can we live out hospitality? And I think if we do that well, if my family does that well, if we're hospitable, the Redemption Hill will be hospitable. Visitors won't be afraid to walk in, and when they come in, they'll be greeted and treated kindly. They'll be brought in. But even more than that, real hospitality is saying, bring your mess and your your problems into my life, because listen, that's what Jesus has done to you. Jesus has welcomed you in. He has been hospitable, and he's saying, I'm taking all of you, every part of it, and I'm going to be a part of you. We also want to see that a pastor is a lover of good. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 4, 8 and says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is the thing that he's encouraging all Christians to do. All Christians should be a lover of good as well. But when we look at a pastor, we want to say, "Does, does, does he love what's good? Does doing good, watching others do good, does that bring him joy and pleasure? Is he a lover of the things that are good? Because that means he's a lover of the things of God. We also want to see that he is self-controlled. Now, this particular word here is probably talking more of the mind because the, the, the final one that we're going to talk about being disciplined is also could be translated as self-controlled, but it seems to be more disciplined in the body. Can he control his thoughts and his attitudes? Colossians 3 tells us to set our minds on the things above, not on the things of earth. Can we do that? Can we set our minds on the things that are above? Where is the pastor's mind? What happens when he daydreams? What does he think about? Does he think about God in those things? Do we know? Does he think God's thoughts after him? Next, we see that these two, they kind of go together, that the pastor is upright and holy, 
It's another way to say that he is like God. He follows in the footsteps of Jesus. He's upright. He does what is good. To be upright is to be righteous. It just means he does the right thing at the right time. He is holy. He's been set apart. He set his life apart to look like the Lord, to look like Jesus. And finally, he must be disciplined. This seems to be relating to bodily discipline. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, it says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul there is saying that that he has to even keep discipline over his own body, keep his own lust, his own desires in check. Are pastors people who can control their bodily passions and desires? Are they gluttonous? Are they drunkards? Are they lustful? Uh, we, We cannot have pastors who do those things. It might sound kind of obvious, but it's a reality that the Bible has to give us. It may be even pointing to the situation in Crete, that they were lazy gluttons. They were not disciplined. And Paul, uh, Paul is telling Titus, you need to find the men there who are disciplined and appoint them to be elders over these churches. As we do that, and as Kendall alluded to early, as he, he introduced that song and Christ Alone coming out of that, he talked to the reality and something we've always said, I'm going to say over and over again, the pastor's job is to what? It's to point you to Jesus. That ultimately when we look at this, these lists of must-nots and must-bes, we have to see that what they're doing is they're creating, they're, they're outlining and sketching a person, a man who points to Jesus, who looks like and typifies Christ and who he is. Because somebody emulates these qualities, he will be pushing his people to look like Jesus. My son has a book, and this book is called Full Moon Rising. Not full, but full, F-O-O-L, Full Moon Rising. I would encourage you to get it for those of you who have young kids. If you're looking for a, a, group, a book that teaches a good lesson about oh God, this is a great little book. It's a, written in rhymes, and it opens up, and there's this little boy praying, and he says he hears about this moon, the moon who thinks all about himself. The moon says that he shines brighter than any star in the sky, that, that he is brighter than anything about, against this dark backdrop that he has each night. And the book goes, the moon is talking about how he loves to sing songs that are about himself, and it's funny, and he talks about how people want to walk on him, and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the book, what the moon realizes and learns is he gets a glimpse of a beam from the sun. And the moon realizes that all he's doing is reflecting the glory of another. That the moon doesn't have any light that's his own, that he's just reflecting the glory of the sun. And the book says this in the last stanza. So now each night, a new delight is what he loves the most. So at first the the moon is crushed by this reality, but then the moon realizes the truth. What he loves the most is reflecting light with all his might, The sun is now his boast. He finds his boasting not in himself, but in the sun that he reflects. And the poem transitions back to the little boy praying at the beginning, and he says, So God, I pray for grace each day to find the joy that's true in all my days, in all my ways, in making much of you. That's the life of a pastor. That's the life of a Christian. That has to be our prayer and our heartbeat that we see that we are like the moon. We simply reflect the glory of another. 
The pastor who lives the way that he ought to live isn't doing that in his own power or in his own strength. He does that because he is tied into, he's a part of the vine that is Jesus. Because he has a relationship with Christ. And it's not his righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. That's what he sees, is I'm just like the moon. I'm just reflecting back the glory of another. I'm an under-shepherd pointing to the true shepherd. Because that's what we have to see. That whether or not it's just that you're not arrogant because Jesus wasn't arrogant, but the Bible tells us that he humbled himself to die on the cross. That Jesus wasn't quick-tempered or else he would have judged us long ago. But God, who is slow to anger and who is compassionate and kind, passed over former sins so at the right time he might send his son to die for you and that was son when he came he didn't waste his time getting drunk but he spent times with drunkards and sinners and prostitutes he went and entered into their world and didn't waste his ministry but he fulfilled it and he wasn't violent and he wasn't a bully and he said follow me because i'm the son of the god like he could have but he was humble and meek and gentle and lowly and he wasn't greedy for his own gain but he laid down his own life he who was rich became poor for our sake and in that he was hospitable he encouraged all who were sinful all who were did not be worthy of him to come and sit at his feet he was a lover of all that was good He was self-controlled, upright, and holy. He lived the way that he ought to live, and he fulfilled every law that we could never fulfill so that in his death, he might bring us to God and reconcile us to Jesus because in his discipline and his power over self didn't just fall into bodily discipline, but his power resulted in a bodily resurrection. He rose from the dead and conquered sin and death so that in him we might have life, that we believe in him. You see, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The pastor must live it out. And for you, what I want to see, your application point is this, reflect the character of Christ to others as followers of Jesus. This is something that we must do. It is our calling. Because if we do that, we see that as human beings, the only way we can really do that as we hold firm to the word of God. So that brings us to our last point. The pastor must hold firm. Verse 9 tells us he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Pastors have to be people who hold firm to the trustworthy word. That word is the gospel. It became the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. When Paul writes this down, he's writing the New Testament at this time, but he's saying the word that they had been taught by the apostles, by people who come to them that preach the gospel to him, the New Testament teaches that gospel that Jesus lived, died, and rose again from the dead. He's saying they have to hold to it and that the message itself is trustworthy. It is good news. And why must he hold fast to that, hold fast to that doctrine, those words? Because that way he's able to give instruction to sound, or another way to say that is healthy doctrine, doctrine that brings life. So he might give instruction and also rebuke those who contradict it. Because you have to rebuke and give instruction with the gospel itself, with the New Testament, with the Bible, with that truth that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again. This is one of the most difficult things in my life, in my ministry, that I try to help people 
understand. This is the thing that I'm giving my life to. As Paul said in the beginning of, of Titus 1, that he was the apostle. He's giving himself over for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. That, that what we know about the gospel, what we believe, what we internalize, what changes us, is that's going to be what we actually live out. When you have problems that you're living out and you're experiencing difficulty, we have to be able to bring that through a gospel grid. We have to bring that through the truths of Scripture and say, what does this speak to my life? Because the trustworthy word, the gospel that they're given, that's what they're, he's being told to instruct and rebuke people with. And I want to give you an example of what I mean by this. This is a little bit philosophical. It's, it's hard, but it's, it's maybe the most important thing that I can ever teach you. And Paul gives an example of this in Galatians 2. So what's happening in Galatians 2, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Galatia, and he's telling them about a time where Peter, who he calls Cephas here, it's another name for Peter, was showing partiality, and he was eating with the Gentiles. And then a group of Jews, Christians come, Judaizers come, and because he's afraid of them and their judgment in his life, he stops eating with those Gentiles, and he goes and he eats with those Jews. And Paul says this, so I'm going to read the passage, and I want to point out what I'm trying to get at. But when I saw their contact, what was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force these Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know, listen to what he says, what does he rebuke him with? Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Those words could be summed up in this, that is what we call the justification of by faith. That's a doctrine that the church has taught for thousands of years. Justification by faith. When Paul has people sitting at the wrong table, he doesn't say, cut it out, go sit with each other. He brings out the gospel and says, look, if you're justified by faith and not by works of the law, you cannot interact with each other by works of the law. You must interact with each other by the fact what you've been justified by, your faith, that you're all common in Jesus. That's what he rebukes them with. He goes on and says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too found ourselves to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? He's saying like we as Jews are also sinners. If we think we're justified by the law, then that, does that make Jesus the, the Savior? Of, uh, he's just leader of sinners? No, Jesus is leader of this royal priesthood. Why? Because we're not justified by the law. We're justified by grace. He says, Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, talking about that doctrine that they taught him and Cephas together, I prove myself to be a transgressor or a hypocrite. For though the law I died to the law so that I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if it was righteousness, we're through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul has people sitting at the wrong table, and his answer to them is the gospel. 
He brings out justification by faith, unification with Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, the death of Jesus. And he says, that's why you don't sit at the wrong table. That's why you don't keep people ostracized. If, you're, if you found out about your kids keeping other kids away from their lunch table and telling them this is where the cool kids sit and the other kids sit over there, you would be enraged that your child would do that. But are we enraged that our child would do that because we want to make everybody feel good and be a part of it? We do want people to feel good. Not primarily. Primarily, you should be enraged because you should say to your kid, listen, you're justified by faith, by a holy God. God of the universe loves you, not because what you've done. Who do you think you are to tell some other kid that you don't love them? Who do you think you are? We'd be enraged if our kids did that because we would say, man, I taught you better than that. You know that you're accepted by the holy God of the universe so you can accept anybody. That's what's happening there. What I'm trying to advocate for is we've got to pull the gospel into everyday life. Too often, the gospel is something that we do from 10 to noon on Sunday, and then we forget about it everywhere else. When Paul is talking about pastors and what they are to do, and they give instruction, and when they rebuke people who contradict it. He's not just talking about people who contradict it philosophically or ideologically. He's not just talking about false false teachers. What we're going to see next week is those false teachers claim to know God, but they don't live that way. When I rebuke you, when you live sinfully, and you will, and I will come very gently and in private and talk to you, I will not do it and say, dude, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Live by the law. Get over it. Toughen up. Start living the right way. That's not what pastors are called to do. Pastors are called to come along and whisper the gospel of grace into your ear and say, listen, brother, listen, sister. You've been saved by grace alone. You're going to slay your sin by grace alone. Let me help you run this race by grace alone. Listen to this beautiful gospel, the trustworthy word as taught, and let me instruct you and rebuke you in it and nothing else. Because the law, the weak as it was, and what it could not accomplish, Romans 8 tells us, Christ did and grace, grace did. The law is not going to help you change. The law is not going to make you more like Jesus graces. We have to learn what it looks like to embody the gospel of grace and bring it into everyday life. And I know that's hard. That's a hard thing to learn. How do I bring justification into faith with my kids who are fighting each other? But that's the goal. The goal is that when you're instructing them, when you're instructing the people you work with, when you have problems with your neighbor, when you're talking to them, you're saying, hey, because I'm a Christian, because I love Jesus, this is why I do what I do. Because Jesus died and rose again and and he rescued me from my sin. That's why we can have this conversation. There's a pastor, his name is J.D. Greer, and he wrote a book called Gospel. If this is new stuff to you, I really, really want to highly commend that book to you. It's called Gospel by J.D. Greer. And in that book, he says this, The gospel is not merely the diving board off which we jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool itself. What he's talking about is a lot of times in our circles, what happens is the gospel becomes something that we just think is for lost people. It's just the diving board. But once we get into the pool, now live the law and straighten up. What we want to see is it's the very water that we swim in. It's the pool itself. 
that you need the gospel every day. You need these truths every day. So final application point to this. Rebuke and encourage others with the gospel. That's a hard skill to learn. I know it's hard. But we're going to teach it. And that's what we're going to pound here at Redemption Hill Church. We're going to help you see how this gospel message makes it into Monday morning. That is my life's mission. It's what I will give myself to you. I want to conclude this morning by just saying this simple thing. The reality is, is when I go on uh, websites at churches in the city of Columbus, it is really, really rare that anybody on their website says, we don't believe the Bible. Like, no one says that on any Christian website for any church ever. But I want to warn you, and I'm not going to call any specific churches out, there are churches out there who are not faithful to the Bible. That's true. And that's really hard to tell. I want to encourage you in this. I think the reason that Paul, in his writing to Titus, and he tells him, Paul, your job is to make things straight, to appoint things in order. And then the first thing he tells him is, so step one, appoint elders that look like this. Is who a pastor, who a church calls and appoints to be their pastor can work as a litmus test to the truth is, do they hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught? A litmus test, for those of you who are unfamiliar, if you could take you back to freshman biology, uh, Sarah could tell you all about this. She's a, she's a biology teacher. She's a science teacher. A litmus test is, 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 is what would happen when you're testing the acidity of liquids, right? And it's just this little piece of paper. They vary in colors and how they work, and they come with a little key with them typically, and you put it in your liquid, right? If you put it into water, the ones that we did in high school, it would turn green. And green meant that it had a pH of a neutral, which is 7. If it's lower than 7, it's an acid. If it's higher than 7, it's a base. That's what we call a litmus test. And so it helps us know, and sometimes that makes it into everyday life when we talk about a litmus test, is how do I know which side of the line this falls on? Is it neutral? Is it an acid? Or is it a base? And what I want to say is that who a church calls to be their pastor, who churches appoint to be their pastors, who they ordain to be their leaders, speaks volumes to, do they hold firmly to the word is taught? If they're calling people who are arrogant, quint-tempered, greedy, violent, out for their own gain, rather than people who are hospitable, slow to anger, gentle, kind, the things that we read about today, that's how you know. Do they actually live it? Is it actually trustworthy? That's why we take this so seriously here. That's why we'll take it so seriously in the future. Let's pray to each other together. Father, I thank you just as somebody who is imperfect, who often can't even get the words out correctly and stumbles over his own words. That your grace is sufficient for me. I thank you, God, that I just get to be like the moon and I just shine back your glory. That any glory that I have, any light that I have, it's not my own. 
that I get to just point people to you. So Lord, I just thank you that that's what we get to do. And I pray that you would bless our church. Bless our church with pastors, with a plurality of elders one day. Help us take our time and do this right. And help us as a church be a church that holds to the trustworthy word as taught. Because we want people who will give us instruction and rebuke according to the gospel of Jesus Christ and not apart from it. Help us. Help me. And I ask this in your name. Amen.